I will outwork everybody. I am one of the hardest workers you will ever meet. And I knew I didn't have a formal education. I didn't have access or resources or connections. I might not know all the things, but I will outwork you. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, welcome to a special live episode of Skimmed from the Couch. I am so excited to be back from mat leave for this recording. It's been a huge week and we are thrilled to have a virtual audience joining us today for our conversation with Rachel Hollis. Rachel is a best-selling author, podcast host, and motivational speaker. You know her as the author of the hit book, Girl, Wash Your Face, and her latest book, Didn't See That Coming, just came out last fall. Rachel, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. We're going to start with our first question. Let's have you skim your resume. What are the highlights? So my first job out of high school, I didn't go to college, so my first job out of high school was actually Miramax Films. So back in the day when Miramax was making Good Will Hunting and Emma, and uh, that was a bit of a trial by fire, as you might suppose. I sort of hopped around production companies after that, working as an assistant and then a coordinator. And in the midst of that, working in LA and working in the entertainment industry was like an incredible lesson on some levels and also pretty toxic environment on the other. And so I started to dream about what it would look like to start my own company and be my own boss. And after having a really crappy boss, I quit on a Friday and started my company Monday morning. And back then I was an event planner. So I had gotten my experience doing movie premieres and press junkets and I started to do those for brides and people having bat mitzvahs and someone's 50th birthday party. And I slowly built that company up into what would become a high-end luxury event business. And it was really fun and it really fed my creative passion of designing spaces and the sort of thrill of putting an event together. And I started to get a bit restless and began again to dream of something more. I started a blog back in 2008, which was sort of the heyday to have a blog and slowly then built that into a media company. So back then we wouldn't have used, we wouldn't have known things like advertising or um, putting things into your blog posts or talking about a certain product. But I started to kind of finagle my way and realize that there was a business there. And that gave birth to the media company that I now own today. And I like to say, you know, my my job hasn't changed that much over the years. I have always just been trying to communicate with women in my community. And um, my company and the things that I teach have evolved as I have evolved as a woman. So I started writing in a blog, then I began writing books, then I began writing about my life. And all of that led to the things that I'm known for today, which is speaking and writing and podcasts. Obviously, as you just said, so much of your life is, you know, out in the public, it's on social media. What is something that we can't Google about you that you haven't posted on Instagram? 
that you can't, oh my gosh, so many things. Well, okay, I'll tell you guys, I have not said this publicly, but I'm really excited. I just finished my first screenplay. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. I, I literally cried when I wrote the last words because it's something I've dreamed about writing for a long time. And as a, writing is my creative outlet. And I actually started as an author in fiction and then somehow fell into nonfiction and kind of advice. And it's always been a dream to write a screenplay because I want to challenge myself in new medium. So that was a big deal to finish. Who knows what will happen? And honestly, I don't even care. I'm just proud of myself for finishing. Is it adapted from your books or is it no, totally different? Totally new idea. Yeah, totally new idea. That's so exciting. Great way to start off the year. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to, um, we're going to kind of go back into to how you grew up and, and how your story started to evolve. We mentioned in our intro, the title of your book, Didn't See That Coming. Your own story started with a tragedy that obviously you and your family did not see coming, which was losing your brother to suicide. And that loss is such a, an enormous part of your story. And want to start, first of all, just by saying, I'm so sorry for your loss. And, and also just by asking if you could share with our audience just how that experience shaped you at, at such an earlier age and, and really shaped your resilience. Yeah, so uh, when I was 14 years old, my older brother Ryan committed suicide. He had struggled with mental illness for kind of as long as I can remember. It was when I was little, I didn't really understand that that's what was happening. But as I can look back as an adult, I understand um, it from a totally different perspective. I was 14, and I think that losing him in, in that way would have been awful and traumatic no matter what, but what sort of added so much more gravity to the situation was that I found him. So I had not just the loss, but also the PTSD of, of that day and that morning and going through those things. And it was life shattering. I mean, uh, my family, my, I, I think that my parents did the best that they could with the skills and the tools that they had, but they didn't have a lot of skills and tools. So it was already a hard childhood. And this was sort of the thing that shattered uh, everything that was. And trying to learn to deal with that when I didn't have parents who sort of knew even how to help, how to advise or to ask me questions or, hey, this is who we should talk to, or that just wasn't a resource that existed in my life. So it was really hard to say the least. But I do think my entire life, I have been really positive. And not because my life was positive, but because I think just the opposite. I think because my childhood was so difficult, I just always thought, okay, this is going to suck no matter what. So I I'm going to try and look for things to be grateful for, look for, um, I would imagine sort of a future that didn't include these things. I just, I've always been that person. And even after Ryan died, I, I didn't have language for it, but I could see how there were certain things in that experience that had made me stronger, that had given me empathy. And again, I just, I couldn't have used those words then, but now I understand that no matter what we go through, it, when we go through hard things, we have the choice of 
being made bitter by it, um, you know, staying in that sadness, staying in that place, or if you're gonna have to walk through hell, then you may as well come out the other side and have learned something in the process. So his death really is such a part of my story and is so, so much of the life I had today is because I had to live through this really hard thing when I was very, very young. Do you think that resiliency can be taught or do you think it's something that we all have to kind of go through and experience in order to really understand it? I don't know that you can really teach someone how to be resilient if they haven't had an opportunity to do so. I'm forgetting the exact definition of it right now, but it's something about how quickly you can bounce back from something. Not only that you stand up and go again, but how quickly you can do so. And when we go through our first big hard experience, I think that the resilience, it's like a muscle and it hasn't been trained yet. So it's a longer period of time where you have to allow yourself to sit in the pain and you have to allow yourself to acknowledge that this is hard. Like, did you say that you were on maternity leave? Yes, I was until this week. Is this your first baby? Yeah. First of all, the fact that you're upright, you're wearing real clothes, like I, amen, good for you. That is spectacular. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) Right, it's like, when you have your first baby, I don't care how, I don't care what books you read, I don't care what you know, we all have that moment where like, what the hell is going on right now? Totally. If you decide to have another baby, you will know you will have the resiliency of gone you've gone through it before so it will still suck don't let anybody tell you that it won't suck no matter how many kids you have but you will bounce back faster you will feel stronger you will know things because you've gone through it before so i really do think that it is something that you sort of learn when you're forced to learn it what do you think is your superpower at this point Honestly, okay, just in all things. It, like This applies to business, being a mom, in my friendships, in my personal life, everything. Honestly, I stand back up and go again. I just keep going. I was interviewing Tony Hawk, the skateboarder, earlier this week, and he was so rad, by the way. And he's been skating for 40 years, and he's built this incredible legacy and has done so many things in the sport. And he was like, oh no, I just, I just keep going. And I was like, me too. And he's like, that's all it is, is so many people have this dream. So many people set out to, to achieve this goal or do these things and they get discouraged and life kicks their ass and they stay there because they think that that difficulty is a sign that this wasn't meant for them. And I actually think the opposite. I think that if you call a big shot, if you set like a major goal for yourself and it's hard, it's because God, the universe, whatever you believe in is trying to set you up for the strength that you're gonna need to climb the mountain. So I just keep going. So you didn't, what I'm fascinated by is, you know, we've had many people on the show. We've all read many stories about women who have had very fancy degrees and a very fancy higher education and use the skills, you know, from an MBA or another type of degree to launch that into a business. And I think what's very striking is that, you know, due to many of, you know, the tragic circumstances that happened to you earlier in life, you tapped into that resiliency and you you figured out really like the skills you needed through free education. Right. How did you figure out how to leverage that into a business opportunity? 
So I think a couple of things. Number one, I didn't know how to have this be a business. Some of the women in my community who've been with me for over a decade would tell you, I had this blog forever and I didn't make any money off of it. I built a community and I built a community like out of service and out of wanting to be able to talk to women and wanting to be able to share these stories. And just so you know, I started as a blogger talking about casserole recipes and like how to make a throw pillow. I was not at all in the world that I'm in now. And I think number one, I just sort of kept like following that intuition that said like, there's something here, there's something here. And I really built the infrastructure long before I understood how to monetize it. So once I started to, to understand like, dang, you actually, have, there's a lot of people reading this thing. Or when I started my podcast in 2017, it was fully this like throwaway, like I just did it for fun. I didn't even know how to check and see if people were listening. I didn't understand what it was. Over time, you start to see ideas. So like, okay, well, a book is a way to make money or I could get some ads on this. That's like, you start to learn and see other people who are doing similar things. You model behavior of what already exists in the market and you try and apply this thing that you're imagining or this thing you've created to other people's model and then you kind of tweak and adjust and see what's there. I don't think women struggle with how to monetize. I think women struggle with demanding their worth financially. I think that women struggle with saying, this is how much it would cost to hire me to do this thing for you. So we go, is there another way? Like that was a huge deal for me. And I got so much pushback from the community who was like, wait, you now all of a sudden you want me to have to pay to buy a book when you used to just write things for me for free? I'm like, yeah. There's 3,000 posts if you want to go read any of them for free. It's about standing firm in in what you're worth. I want to talk about how you how you started and you said in your in your skim, you know, that you didn't go to college and yet you got a foot in the door at Miramax. And I want to bring people back to those early days for you because whether it's you didn't go to college or you feel you didn't go to the right college or you feel like you don't have the right resume for whatever reason, it can be really hard to get started. And I feel like it's easy at times to, as women say that this is why we're not right for their job, for this job, for the promotion. How did you craft the story of how you grew up to not going to college to getting that first job? I will outwork everybody. I am one of the hardest workers you will ever meet. And I knew I didn't have a formal education. I didn't have access or resources or connections, but I knew that if you gave me a shot, I would, I'll I'll work to death. You can't understand how big a deal that is. I own a few different brands. I have 30 employees. Like I cannot tell you how hard it is to find people who like are moving, like working from a place of heart, working from a place of wanting to do good things, of wanting to, like when you find that, when I find that in my bit, I'm like, we're, and there's people who've been on my team since I started, because when you find that as a leader, you're like, oh, you're in the army forever. So I really don't think that you can misjudge how important it is to have a strong work ethic. 
And I come from, you know, my paternal grandparents who are hugely important in my life, they're in heaven, but I always feel them around me, were farmhands. They were migrant farm workers. They picked cotton, they picked potatoes. My grandma was one of the hardest working women. She had six kids, she was badass. That's what's flowing through my veins. And so I might not, oh my God, like I might not know all the things, but I will outwork you. And I think going into Miramax, I got that job because I started as an intern. And I think I have always been audacious. I shoot my shot way before I'm ready to have that thing. I graduated high school a year early, so I was 17 years old. I had to have my mom sign the lease on my apartment when I moved to LA because I wasn't even old enough to have my own apartment. And I wrote a letter to Miramax, like, dear Miramax, like, (laughs) so dumb, such a country mouse, you guys. And I was just like, I love your movies, like, I want to work here. So, Like, I just pitched myself. I didn't know at the time, like, man, they weren't going to pay me, so they didn't care who was an intern. So they just found this letter, and they called, and they were like, hey, girl, you want to come intern? And we're going to pay you $10 a week, $10 a week to, to be our intern. And I was like, yes! And I just, anything, like, yes, I'll do that. Yes, I'll try. Oh, you need someone? Like, that's how I got into the event space. I wasn't in PR, and I wasn't on the event team but I want, who doesn't want to go work a party where George Clooney and Brad Pitt are hanging out? And I was a young woman. And so any, I'd just be like, hey guys, if you ever need something, like I just was hungry and I hustled and I asked for things. And like I said, I was the, you know, I'm the first one there, I'm the last one to leave. And that word gets around. So I, I would say that was a huge part of it. I was audacious enough to ask, I worked my butt off. And then the last thing, I think this is important and not a lot of people get it. You can't stay in the same place. I think that when you're trying to build a career, you have to move. You, and I mean move companies. Like you have to sort of try the new thing, push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Do you need to move to a new city? Do you need to try a new, like if you really wanna have a career that's crazy successful, you've gotta have experience in more than one place. I wanna dig into that because I think Everything you're saying like makes sense and we're both like nodding, but then there's, there's two things that I want to just dig in for a second. One is when you talk about kind of like, you know, you will work harder, you will work yourself to death. We're also in a burnout culture. And we also, you know, I think people, especially coming out of the year we just came out of are really just trying to protect their mental health and sanity and, and try to find a separation from work and home. And so I'm very curious how you think about that. And I think, Also, there is definitely this stereotype of Gen Z and millennials, like moving around too much in their career. So I'm curious, like how you think about kind of the flip side of what you just talked about. When you are earlier in your career and you have Energizer Bunny sort of energy flowing through your veins and you go, because there is a time in your life where that's not gonna be a thing. I have four kids. I have insane responsibility. That's not a place that I'm at in my life. So I think that there are seasons to rest and there are seasons to sprint. And you have to know yourself well enough to understand which season this is. A season where you have a new baby, not a season to sprint. Season to stay alive. 
right? Like we have to be graceful with ourselves. And I think what I've learned in my life is, is to listen to my body and to listen to my heart and to listen to what I need. But I also do think the flip side is there are seasons when you gotta hustle. That's just reality. So what does it look like to take care of yourself so that when it is a time to sprint, you have the energy that you need to do what's being asked of you? I actually think that burnout happens a lot because you sort of lost the passion for this thing that you were doing. You've been overtaxed, it's too much, you don't have the energy, you're, you're running on empty. And so I live my life to try and generate the energy that is gonna be required for me to live at the level I wanna live. My schedule is very intense. And when I leave here today, I'm gonna go home to four kids who don't care that I'm tired. And they don't care that I was on all day. They want mom, they want me to make dinner, they want games, they want, and that's what I signed up for. Now, I'm not gonna lie, of course there are days where I'm like, you guys, make a sandwich, like I don't have it today. But for the most part, I am trying to meditate, work out, what is my nutrition? What are my supplements? Am I getting enough sleep? I treat my body like I'm an athlete because I want so desperately to, to have the energy required to do life. So that's what I would say about burnout. And then the, the question about moving around a lot, such a good qualifying question, so thank you for asking, is I am not suggesting that you bounce in nine months. I really, like even if I'm looking at a resume, what I'm looking for is, a, is about two years, that you were, you were in a spot for 18 months to two years, you really learned what you needed to learn and you're leaving that space with a referral, a recommendation, you have people who can vouch for how awesome you are. I do think it's important though. I mean, I look at, I'll look at a resume and someone's been somewhere for 12 years and I think that's incredible and you can sort of, you see that they've moved up. But what I worry about that is you only really know one business culture's way of doing things. So I think there is power, not in having 27 different jobs, but considering what does life look like if I change? I think that we don't ask ourselves that question. And, and there is a beautiful opportunity right now and that we're working virtually. And so for the first time ever, I feel like you could get a job at your dream company without having to move from your city which has never existed before. And you have the ability to like test the waters in a new field or at a new company without having to sort of pick up your life and go somewhere else. So yeah, those, those would be my thoughts on that. You spoke about that you, you go for the people on your team that have heart, that will put in the work, that have that grit. How do you suss that out when you're interviewing someone? Well, first, I really, really trust my gut with who I'm, I'm sitting with. And I would say, you're not even getting to an interview with me unless you've gone through quite a few steps to get to that place. Um, and my leadership team or whoever has interviewed you before you get to me is also sort of going with that same thing. We're asking really intentional questions to kind of hear how you answer. We're asking you how you've dealt with difficult situations. Have you ever had a conflict with someone at work? How did you resolve it? I think that you can learn a ton by listening, right? Just listen to someone talk and sort of guide them through that process. Also, I don't, I don't know about you guys, I think women have the most incredible intuition. I think it is one of our superpowers. And one of my favorite questions to ask people now, whether they're like talking about, uh, you know, someone they just broke up with and oh my gosh, and it turns out they were such a jerk or they had a boss that they hated and they're like, you know, they're, my favorite question to ask now is, 
at what point did you see a red flag and ignore it? Because I think that we always have, right? We always are like, oh, you know what? I knew. And I think it's a really important question to ask yourself. Not only did you know, but why did you ignore that intuition? Lastly, I'll say there's a, there's a pretty big role in my company right now that I'm looking for. And whenever it's that high, I'm, I literally am just putting you know, feelers out to my network. Who do you know? Who would be great? And I think it's really important whether we're doing this with our dream boss, our dream employee, our dream best friend, our dream partner in life, that you are very intentional about what you ask for. So I met with my leadership team yesterday and I was like, let's just dream, like, what do we want to manifest for this role? Like, let's be very specific about what we want this. And we talked about a servant leader, someone who leads from their heart, who cares about their team, who has integrity. Like we use all of those words. And then I got an email yesterday from someone I had asked about who said, I want to send you this person. She is beloved. Like she is just, and, and I was like, this is so wild. I'm very much a hippie. So I feel like when you ask the universe for exactly what you want. You're preaching to the choir. We have our, our manifesting date next week. We're going to do it outside with masks six feet apart, but we're very excited. So we, we are into it, but we have, we've never manifested for roles on our team, which is interesting to do as a leadership exercise. Rachel, what's an example of where you've seen a red flag and ignored it? Girl. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, there's so many. Okay, wait, let me think of an appropriate answer for you. That's not the one we want. Yeah. Oh, no, I think that I think I've done this in friendships. I think when you're grown up, it's hard to make new female friendships. And I think that sometimes I have ignored personality traits or things that people have said and done because I wanted to have someone to hang out with and go to, you know, happy hour with. Then later when that sort of blew up and became something terrible, I was like, well, you knew this and you sort of kept walking through it. You know, I got divorced this last year and I do think that going into I'm not I'm so not in a place where I can even think about dating again. But I do think that there's a gift. It's kind of the same thing I was talking about earlier with my brother of like the gift in this beyond beautiful memories and our four kids and all of these things that we have had together is I will walk into the future of dating with a totally different perspective about what I will and will not accept. And I don't think that that would exist if I hadn't ignored things in the past. What are you vulnerable about sharing? Uh, well, I will never again talk about a relationship publicly. Huh. Not on purpose. I, you know, I had this blog and I uh, was doing a lot of media. And I think it's, it's pretty normal if your audience is women that they're like, oh, show your husband, whatever. This is ages ago. He'd be on Instagram or I'd share a picture, whatever. And then people loved it. And I think that when your audience loves something, you're like, okay, I'll, this is my life. So yeah, I'll show you more. And then it sort of starts to consume and that becomes its own entity or like its own brand. That becomes something twisted. And there are times when, let's say you're scheduled, because we used to host a podcast together, like we're scheduled to host a podcast, but I'm frustrated or he's frustrated because maybe we had an argument that morning, but now we got to go do a podcast and act. And so I just think, that was, that is a vulnerable thing that shouldn't 
be public for me, like at least for me personally, I won't do that again because I think it puts too much pressure on this relationship and being in relationship and having it be healthy and good and inspiring and loving is already hard enough. So yeah, I feel I feel pretty vulnerable about that. And I think the backlash from the community when we did announce the divorce, not from everybody, but certainly there was a segment and it was very harsh and, and ugly and awful. And what I heard people saying, cause I'm always trying to understand like, man, I'm trying to understand why this is your response. And what I heard people say was, if your marriage can't work, what hope does mine have? And I was like, girl, a stranger on the internet should not be what determines whether or not your relationship is successful. But I just think it became something that I never intended it to, so I won't do that again. On that subject, I wanna go into a little bit more of you know backlashes that have come up. There were two that I would love to, to hear a little bit about how you navigated it and, and what you learned from it. You know, the first was criticism over plagiarism on your social media. And then the second, which I think, you know, is especially poignant when we think about 2020 and the work that we should all be doing is making sure that you're more inclusive around women of color and the specific plights that they have that I think, you know, we certainly have have thought about how we didn't always address that as, as much as we should have. How have you thought about and responded to those two specific criticisms? Right. The first, with, with my book, Girl Stop Apologizing, there were things in it that either were lines that sort of had been used or were things I didn't know were lines that had been used. And typically, when you write a book, they do what's called a plagiarism scan. So they scan it and they highlight anything for you that, hey, this, this kind of sounds like something else because there are things inside of the vernacular that we all grew up hearing that to me didn't occur to me that, oh my gosh, that's someone's quote. So it honestly, the first time that I even knew that that was a thing was when it, people started talking to me about it on social. And I was like, like, what the hell? Like, I was so devastated, truthfully, like because it is so fucking hard to write a book. It is so hard to write that many words. And using someone else's line inside of your, whether you intend to or not, is, um, is devastating. And also, it's the easiest fix in the world. It's the easiest fix. This sounds like someone else, change it. And it wasn't done on that specific book. So when people started to pull quotes from the book and attribute them to me, then it was like, wait, that's not yours. That is from someone in 1982 who said it in their book, whatever. For what it's worth, and I individually reached out to every single person that I had inadvertently done that to and apologized. This was not my intention. We've changed it. I, I am, I own this and I am sorry that it happened. And that's literally the best that I can do in that situation is own the mistake, apologize for it, make it better, do better next time. That being said, for what it's worth, male authors use vernacular like that all the time, all the time. They quote each other, they pull things, they change one word, they add their, it happened all the time. And I don't think that male authors get it the same way that a woman does. So it's like, oh, you said this thing that, um, I can't think of an example right now, but you said this thing. And it's like, yeah, Tony Robbins said that. 
um, uh, Brandon Burchard said, all of these people, but there isn't a backlash against the men. Um, so it felt really pointed to me because in the personal growth space, a lot of the things that I'm talking about are stuff that you've heard before because we've heard it for 40 years. So for what that's worth, when you talk about the idea of white privilege, which as a white woman, I fucking own. Like I all day understand that I have access and resources that my best friends who are black women do not have. And I think it's the same attitude. Every day I'm gonna wake up, I'm gonna do the best I can with what I have today. And along the way, I hope I learn more. If I make a mistake, I'm gonna own it. I'm going to apologize for it and I'm gonna do better. Um, you know, something that happened on social, I wanna say last summer was I had a young woman on my team who ran social media for me. And she posted a quote, that's a Maya Angelou quote, with no attribution, not with my name there, but just a, Maya, a very famous Maya Angelou quote with no reference to who it was from. So if you see that on social, it looks like I'm taking credit for this thing. And I didn't even know it happened because truthfully, I, I don't spend a ton of time on social back then. And the next day, someone was like, hey, are you okay? Like one of my friends reached, hey, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, what are you talking about? And they're like, what is going on on your Instagram? And I went on, because I'm like, what? And I saw this thing, and I, I mean, the, the bottom falls out of your stomach. Sick, just sick. Because it's not even about, like, whatever. I, people are super pissed, as they should be. That's not even the problem. The problem is how often... Um, people of color who have created, who have written, who have drawn, who have photographed, who have done these things, have had their work taken by people who are white. And so what devastated me was what this meant to the people in my community who now feel like this isn't a safe space for them. That's exactly it, Rachel, which is that I think, especially like women of color who have been silenced over and over in, in institutional things and in history, it's it's why it, it was it is so devastating to them. And so before we you know move into our lightning round, I would just love to hear from you. How are you working to make sure that your community is more inclusive going forward and and that you are lifting up their voices? Well, so my commitment at that time was, I want to elevate voices who should be having this conversation. So I, I'm super blessed in that my best friend is a black woman who has done, a decade of work in racial reconciliation. So the first thing, we had had it at the company before, but the first thing that we did was as a company, we put, you know, we shut down for several days and put the staff through racial reconciliation work and what does this mean and how are you showing up and what does privilege look like? We did book clubs here. We, I would say, I have the one, one of the most diverse stages that exists in conferences today and always have because for me, as a woman in business who went to conferences and never saw another woman on stage, it is so essential that you see yourself on stage. And that means that you see people who look like you, you see people who are differently abled, you see every size, every age, every ethnicity. So it's about how do you continue to show up and elevate the voices that should be speaking on this subject, that should have the opportunity. How do we make sure that we're 
um, you know, is reading about the 15% pledge about ensuring that, you know, 15% of the product on the shelves are by Black-owned businesses. Like, how do we keep elevating these things so that you understand? Because I get that I have a community that is a lot of white women, a lot of white women. And I don't think that it's about me schooling them on what it is. I, I want to be like, go read this book, go list, go follow her, go do, this is who you should. And not, just so we're clear, not so that you can go ask them to own your process or your education for you. Not so you can go help me understand or screw you. There are a million things that exist right now that you can educate yourself on this without having to put that onus on her. Um, but just because you're, here's a, just for those of you who are watching, just a, a, a really simple piece of advice. If your social media feed is filled with people who look like you, you are doing this wrong. And I mean you are doing life wrong. If your social media feed is not filled with people who look differently, think differently, vote differently, love differently than you do, of course we're gonna continue to have this divisive world that we live inside of because you don't understand that she's a woman just like you're a woman, that that person has the same hopes and dreams. Like, we, we have to actually literally do life with people who are not like us. I mean, I was watching the inauguration yesterday and just bawling, just fall, like, thank you, God. Like, thank you, God, that we are getting this fresh start and there's something new here. And in it, like, perhaps what could come out of this process is you don't have to think the same way that somebody else does. And you don't even have to understand. But there is incredible power in listening. We're going to jump to our lightning round. Um, okay. Rapid fire. You ready? I'm ready. Morning person or night owl? Morning person. Last TV show you binge watched? The Witcher. Most used app on your phone? Spotify. What's your biggest guilty pleasure? It was romance novels, but then I got divorced and I can't read them anymore. And so now it's looking at the Discover Chef section of my Instagram and reading about celebrity couples that I don't know who they are, or what they're famous for. Any tips for combating stage fright? I heard Oprah say once years ago that nerves are a selfish emotion because you're making it about you. So if you take the pressure off yourself and focus on how you can serve that audience, that will allow you to lead from the heart, which will remove the stage fright. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Bye guys. Bye. Thank you guys so much. And thank you to the audience for sitting with us. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all of the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 